Well, this morning we're going to be, uh, Lord willing, considering Jeremiah uh, chapters 30 through 33. I'm not going to be able to read uh, all of that text, and so I'm going to be taking select portions, excerpts from it. Uh, if you've been here uh, over the last little while, you know that we've been working through the Bible together in a year, and so we've been reading through Jeremiah. Uh, this morning I'm going to take this section, uh, which many of you have read, uh, but before we do that, uh, because I can't read the entire thing, I'm going to read from the book of Matthew. These are familiar words. You don't need to turn there. Uh, this is the word of God. When the Magi had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said to the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then, what was said to the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted. Because they are no more. Before we look at uh, Jeremiah, let's pray. Father, we would ask that uh, by your Spirit, uh, you would enable us this morning to benefit from your Word. You and you alone. I know the circumstances of our lives and our weeks and our weekends. You know uh, what brings us here this morning, uh, what's in our mind and what's in our heart. Father, you know how to take the truth of your word and how to uh, touch us in just the place where we need it the most. You know how to correct us and shape us, refine us, rebuke us, uh, encourage us. You know the word that we need. You have, you have given it to us. And I pray now we will be able to appropriate it and benefit from it. Lord, we need to be fed. We need the strength and the nourishment that can only come from you. And so we look to you. We look to you to be our teacher and our guide. We look to you as our master and our king. We look to you as the one who has the words of life. And we ask you to nourish and strengthen our heart and our soul and our mind. Lord, for those who are here with physical weakness, I pray that you will give them uh, the due measure of physical strength that's needed to be able to attentively hear your word, process it, and digest it. Be with those who are too uh, weak or sick to be here with us this morning, who wish that they were. Uh, bless them where they are and draw them close to you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you were here a few weeks ago, uh, when we started in Jeremiah, you will recall that I said that Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. Uh, he is the one who's set apart from the womb. That sounds very exciting. Even before you were formed, I knew you. That sounds very, very exciting. I appointed you, I set you apart as a prophet of the nations. Fantastic job description. But then what Jeremiah is called to is what really, truly, in his context, amounts to a life of futility. A life of, of endless frustration. As every time he presents the message of the word of God, uh, he's met with not only ridicule, but also uh, verbal opposition and physical opposition. He's going he's to end up 
the, uh, pitched into a cistern at one point, you know, where he's left to die. Uh, so his life is not uh, overwhelming in terms of the metric of happiness. Uh, he's the weeping prophet, oh, that my, my head were a well of water. If my head were a spring of water, my eyes a well of tears. In other words, you know, he, he cries, he, he weeps himself dry. And then just wishes he, there was more resources emotionally inside of him so he could weep more. I'm not sure if you've ever had that experience of, of crying until you just can't cry anymore. Uh, that was Jeremiah's experience on more than one occasion. He's this sort of psychologically and emotionally fragile person uh, placed in the worst time in Israel's history. When in their rebellion and the profound wickedness of society, and their apostasy and rejection of God and their idolatry, as, as all of society is going in entirely the wrong direction, uh, politically, religiously, and socially, there's, there's Jeremiah, utterly psychologically and emotionally ill-equipped for this job. And God has set him apart to be a prophet in the worst time of Israel's history, right before God brings the climactic covenant curse of removing the people from the land, Jerusalem is destroyed, the temple will be burned down, and the people taken away. And for decades, Jeremiah sees it coming. And his job is to proclaim to people who will not listen that this is what's going to happen. tough. Doubtless Jeremiah intended on trying to accomplish something good and felt that everything he tried to do to bring about even the smallest amount of goodness in direction was blocked every time. But in chapters 30 through 33, we come to what scholars who study the book of Jeremiah refer to as the book of consolation. God is going to say, God has messages for Jeremiah in this section, which are not all woe and judgment and gloom. There's actually some rays of hope here. Uh, there's, some, there's some light that breaks in. Uh, it's almost like, uh, in a proleptic sense, anticipating the new heavens and new earth, uh, where, where God will wipe every tear. And, and the image there is, is almost of a, of a, it's almost a maternal image of God, where, where God gets down, culturally a maternal image, where, where, where God gets down on his hands and knees before you know, the toddler with the skinned knees and just and sort of takes his celestial thumb and just just wipes away those tears. It's almost like Jeremiah has a little foretaste of what that will be like. Surrounded by an environment of, of literal bloodshed and, and death and agony and, and scenes that we can't imagine in terms of pathos. God comes along to this prophet at just this time and says, Jeremiah, there's there, there, is, there is another message too. Not the dominant message of this book. But there's something else that you need to know. There's something else I have for you. Chapter 30, verse 1. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Write in a book all the words I have spoken to you. As we said, Jeremiah is a compilation of different messages. It's all, it's all disjointed chronologically, uh, but nonetheless. So Jeremiah's already written, been given a lot of messages. Now he has to write them up. There's more that are going to be given later, too. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will bring my people of Israel and Judah back from captivity and restore them to the land I gave their ancestors to possess, says the Lord. Jeremiah. Yes. The people are going to experience the climactic covenant curse. They are going into exile. They have shattered the stipulations of my covenant. 
they're going to reap what they've sown. So, but now, I promise you, Jeremiah, at the end of this very dark tunnel, over the horizon of your own sight, over the horizon, this is hard, over the horizon of your own lifetime, you're not going to see this. So I'm giving you a vision of what it will be. Because you're never going to experience this in this world. You're, you're going to you're going to see the vision and die without experiencing its realization. But know that the vision is good. What's coming eventually is good. I'm going to restore my people. I'm going to bring them back. I have good things stored up for them. My, my plans for them, my plans for you, do not terminate in destruction. They terminate in liberation. They terminate in love. Verse 9 says, Instead, Instead of being in captivity, they will serve the Lord their God and David their king, who I will raise up for them. So do not be afraid, Jacob, my servant. Do not be dismayed, Israel declares the Lord. I will surely save you out of a distant place. Your descendants from the land of their exile, Jacob, will again have peace and security, and no one will make him afraid. Now this speaks, again, I mean, one of these, if you be careful what you wish for. I mean, if you want to be delivered, it presupposes that you're in a situation you don't want to be in. If you want to, if you need to be rescued, it presupposes that you're in danger. If you're looking for sort of future liberation, it means that you're in some way in shackles. And so all of these promises of restoration and, and hope, and do not be afraid. Why are you saying, don't be afraid? Why, why is the promise that no one will make you afraid? Well, because you're in a context of fear. Because you're in a context of terror. But there's a time coming, the Lord says, when I'm going to raise up David. It's not, not literally David. It's the great king who's greater than David. In the line of David. I'm going to raise him up. And in that day, you will no longer be afraid. In that day, Jacob is the people of God. When God raises up the great Davidic king, on that day, the people of God will not have any reason or any cause for fear again. Because of the fulfillment of God's promises. Now, chapter 31 I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to read an extended section here. This is important. But just, just listen, just, just let, this, let this sort of wash over you, sort of wave after wave after wave, all the materials. Just, let, just, sort of let, let, just come on you like a flood. Just let it come over you and wash over you. All of these various promises. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they will be my people. This is, oh, just, I should just say this. Um, I'll read a little bit, then make some comments as we go. Um, this, this is almost the, the reducible abstract of all of the covenant promises of God. In the end, and you get this in Revelation, in fulfillment, in the end, it, it, almost, it almost all reduces to, I will be their God and they will be my people. Everything God does comes down to that. What has he done to make us his people? He is our God. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God to all the families of Israel. And they will be my people. This is what the Lord says. The people who survive the sword will find favor in the wilderness. I will come to give rest to Israel. Remember, the wilderness was 
the place where uh, the children of Israel rebelled against God and wandered for 40 years. There was sort of like a, a pre-exile exile before they even got into the promised land. You know, they came over to the border and they could have gone in. They were barred from it for 40 years while they wandered around and died in the wilderness. So the wilderness is the place where, where you're sort of wandering aimlessly apart from God, waiting for death. God says, no, no, I'm going to redeem even that. You're going to be in the wilderness. You're going to find favor in the wilderness this time. I'll give you rest. I'll give you rest. To the Israelites, that would have been bound up with Sabbath. Everything as it ought to be. Where because there's peace and security, you, you can actually be renewed and refreshed. The Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. I will build you up again. And the reason they need to be built up again is precisely because they've been torn down. But I will build you up again and you, virgin Israel, will be rebuilt. Again, you'll take up your timbrels and go out to dance with the joyful. Uh, Psalm 137, you, you'll remember, uh, when they're in captivity, uh, I mean, David didn't write most of our psalms, and we, we do know this. Uh, psalm 137, it's, it's a psalm that's written in exile when they're in Babylon. The willows of, of the river Kibar, we hung up our harps. When our captors asked us to sing a song, and they mock us, saying, sing a song of Zion. If I sing a song in captivity, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. In other words, they're in a captivity, and there they hang up the harp. They put it away. They put away all of the instruments because you can't be joyful in captivity. The harp was sort of the instrument of joy. We're putting away every every instrument that causes us to celebrate because we're broken and in captivity. Put it away. Our captors are mocking us to sing. We can't do it. But oh, one day, God says, to these people who are going to exile and hang up their harps, one day you're going to take up your timbrels, you're going to go to dance with the joyful. Which also means that they were not part of a Baptist church. Again, you'll plant vineyards on the hills of Samaria. The farmers will plant them and enjoy their fruit. Just a throwaway line. The blessings of God like fruit, they're supposed to be enjoyed. There will be a day when watchmen cry out on the hills of Ephraim, Come, let us go up to Zion to the Lord our God. This is what the Lord says. Sing with joy for Jacob. Shout for the foremost of the nations. Make your praises heard. And say, Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. See, I will bring them from the land of the north. Now, now you've had lots of references to the north in this book. And, and, and what are the references to the north that we've had so far? Maybe some of you will remember. Yeah, it's all bad. Where's, where's disaster coming from? It's coming from the north. And now the people have been brought to the north. And they've been taken into exile to the north. But they're coming back from the north Finally. Disaster was poured out from this direction, but now from this direction, all there is is songs of joy as the people come back. And gather them from the ends of the earth. Among them will be the blind and the lame, expectant mothers and women in labor. A great throng will return. In other words, there's so much peace and security that even the most vulnerable people, the most vulnerable sectors are able to return. No one is going to be left behind. Even, even, even the blind are taken. They will come with weeping. They will pray as I bring them back. Uh, I will lead them beside streams of water. Weeping isn't mourning there. I will lead them beside streams of water on a level path where they will not stumble. Even, even the blind can trust that there's nothing in their way they're going to trip over. Because I am Israel's father. Ephraim is my firstborn son. Hear the word of the Lord, you nations. Proclaim it in distant coastlands or distant islands. In this culture, the Hebrews were not a seafaring people. And so the islands or the coastlands were our way of saying the ends of the earth. So whenever you get that, whenever you get that island language uh, or coastland language uh, in the prophets, it's always referring to this is something which is going to happen spanning the globe. As far as you can imagine, this is the reality. 
proclaim it in the distant coastlands. He who scattered Israel will gather them and will watch over his flock like a shepherd. Yes, because of sin, there's been exile and scattering, but God, at some point, is going to bring them back. He's going to guard them and care for them and watch over them like a shepherd. Why? For the Lord will deliver Jacob and redeem them from the hand of those stronger than they. In other words, their enemies are too strong for them. And they are. One of the, the, the sheer realities of life is that often there, there, it's, there are some people who will just be surrounded by things that they are not strong enough to experience. People find themselves surrounded by things they cannot endure. And we're being dishonest with life. We're being dishonest with empirical reality and experience. If we don't recognize that there are many people in the world who are broken because of what they have to face. But the Lord is stronger than what's stronger than you. The Lord is not overwhelmed by what overwhelms you. What breaks you is something that God can control and can be broken on the almighty power of the Lord. Because nothing is stronger than his resources and love. He will redeem them from the hand of those stronger than they. They will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They're going up to the highest place to proclaim their joy. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord. The grain, the new wine, the olive oil, the young of the flocks and herds. They will be like a well-watered garden. And they will sorrow no more. Sorrowing no more, again, presupposes a long season of sorrow. But it's going to be done. Eventually. Eventually. The weeding is done. Eventually the stones have been removed. The invasive species hacked down. Eventually there's a well-watered garden to enjoy. Then, young women will dance and be glad. Young men and old as well. The, the young women and the young men and the old men and the old women, they, they, they all throw a party. I will turn their mourning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. I will give them comfort and joy. Instead of what they have now, which is sorrow. So call a spade a spade. If it's sorrow, it's sorrow. If it's aching, it's aching. If it's longing, it's longing. If it's disappointment, it's disappointment. If it's brokenness, it's brokenness. If it's discouragement, if it's depression, if it's darkness, it, whatever it is, call it what it is. That doesn't do us any good. In some sort of fake, you know, pious spirituality to, to, to paint a smile on if your heart's broken. But to know that where there is real sorrow, there is in this book of consolation. God is the kind of God who, who is in the business of taking sorrow and comforting people and giving them joy. And, and, and what a transformation. I think this is one of the things, actually, this is, I have to be, this is one of the, the, the little things, the, the, the little lifelines for me sometimes is to feel like what I want for timing 
is quite obviously not in line with what God has decreed for timing in a lot of things. If I was in control of when things would happen, the time frame of my actual life and the time frame of me decreeing the timing of my life would be very, very different timelines. Very different. But I have to believe, and not to be masochistic, and not to be perverse, The longer the sorrow, the sweeter the comfort. The longer the heartache, the sweeter and deeper the joy. That's the possibility. The possibility is that whatever the extent of your sorrow is, how protracted, how agonizing, however overwhelming the circumstances are, however much you just don't understand and long for change and liberation, the sorrow is deep, but the comfort and joy is better. The comfort and joy is sweeter when God brings it. So be patient. Ask for it, long for it, and wait upon the Lord. I will satisfy the priests with abundance. And my people will be filled with my bounty, declares the Lord. The priests will be filled. The people will be satisfied. God in his rich and amazing and impossible Gratuitous nature gives people from exile who are filled with sorrow and mourning and loss. He gives them comfort, joy, satisfaction, and the most precious gift of his bounty. And he gives that to his people for their comfort and consolation. This is what the Lord says. A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. What on earth is this verse doing here? If you're reading contextually, this verse falls like a bombshell in the context. This has, been, this has been blessing after blessing after blessing after blessing after blessing. And hope and joy and comfort and, and fullness and, and bounty and all of these things. It's all ours. And, and then all of a sudden a voice is heard weeping, refusing comfort. The comfort that's offered. Because the children are no more. And apparently... Somehow, that's fulfilled in Matthew's judgment by Jesus. What on earth is that? What's going on in this verse? Well, in my judgment, chapter 31 is telling about all the things that God will do in context of exile. Rachel has lost her children because they are taken into exile. And we know this because, look at verse 16, this is what the Lord says, restrain your voice from weeping. In other words, Rachel is weeping and God comes along and says, don't weep. Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. Why? For your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. Wait a minute. There's, There's this There's this exile. Rachel is mourning for her children because they've been carted away. And now you're saying, don't weep because your work will be rewarded. Why? For they will return from the land of the enemy. So there is hope for your descendants, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. 
Lord, this is an exile verse. It means your children, Rachel's weeping because her children are taken away. The children of Israel. Rachel is sort of the, the matriarch here. Uh, they're, they're taken away. The children of Jacob, patriarch, are taken away. Rachel weeping. Her children are taken away. Because it's don't weep. Yes, there's exile, but it's not the last word. They're coming back. There's restoration. Now, Matthew reads that. And he says Jesus fulfills it. That, that event where, where Herod has those children put to death, that, that fulfills this verse. How does that fulfill this verse? This verse has nothing to do with that event. It has to do with exile. We'll just hang on to that. Turn to verse 27. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will plant the kingdom of Israel and Judah with the offspring of people and of animals, just as I watched over them to uproot and tear down and to overthrow, destroy, and bring disaster. So I watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. I've torn them down, I've uprooted everything, but now I'm planting and building. In those days, people will no longer say, the parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. It's part of the problem with the exiles. Why are the children carted off? Because of the sins of their parents. Instead, everyone will die for their own sin. Whoever eats sour grapes, their own teeth will be set on edge. The days are coming, declares the Lord. Famous, famous passage here. When I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel, with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Why? Because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is a covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Now, at different times... I've worked through this passage here, so I, I, I'm not going to do that this morning, except to say God is doing something fundamentally and categorically new. The people couldn't keep the Old Covenant because it wasn't internalized, it was external, it was on tablets of stone. God says, the reason you're going to exile is because of your sin, you've broken the covenant. There's nothing wrong with the covenant, There's a, the problem is with you, frankly. God, God was not, if you, I mean, if you read the Old Testament, God is not overly secretly secret sensitive. Right? The problem's you. You're the problem. Not me, not the covenant, not the law. It's you. And so, so what I'm going to have to do is just change you. Because it's never going to work. So I'm going to take my law and I'm going to put it in your mind. I'm going to write my law in your heart so you want to obey me. Oh, there's, there's tension there. But you're, you're, you're going to fundamentally want to do the right thing. I will be their God. They will be my people. There's that covenant promise again, that, that encapsulation of everything that you're driving towards. I will be your God. How is this possible? They will all know me. He's creating a covenant community where everyone knows the Lord. From the least to the greatest. No, no, no demographic distinctions. Utter equality in terms of knowing the Lord. I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. And I believe Matthew reads this context and says, if the promise of the new covenant passed through exile and weeping and mourning for children, how much more does the weeping and mourning for these slaughtered children point forward to the inauguration of the new covenant, which is just around the corner because the king has finally been born and he's here. In other words, that verse, that one verse of mourning and weeping in Jeremiah 31.15 functions as a bit of a, as a fulcrum in the text. You lead up to it, you're shocked when you head it, and then immediately you trail off through, through blessing again all the way to the new covenant, because all of the blessings are ultimately rooted in this new covenant transformation. On the basis of the old covenant, it was death and exile. The only way that there, can't, there can be blessing again is on the basis of a new covenant, which is coming through Jesus. And, and so if new covenant blessings flow out of the weeping and mourning for children in Jeremiah, Matthew says, oh, that wasn't, a pro that wasn't a direct verbal prediction about what was going to happen. He didn't see what was happening you know, 
in the time of Jesus, but in terms of filling up the significance and meaning of how God works. If it was true in Jeremiah's time, how much more true is it now when Jesus is here? New covenant blessing comes in the context of weeping for children. That was the promise in Jeremiah 31. The fulfillment is here. Matthew 2 and the remainder of the gospel. Now, chapter 32 is fascinating. I don't have time. I'm not going to read any of it. I just to say this. Many of you here, all of you here, you are, you are shrewd customers. And so I'm convinced that many of you have shockingly good investments probably massive real estate holdings all over the world in prime market locations. And so you know there's a time to buy, a time to sell, time not to buy. A time not to buy would be when your city is surrounded by an army that's about to destroy the city. That's when you're not investing in real estate. That's a free commerce tip from me to you. Uh, and God comes along to Jeremiah and God says, you know, Jeremiah, you know how the city is about to be totally destroyed and all the people are going to be carted off? Jeremiah says, yes. Because it's great. Now you're going to invest in real estate. And Jeremiah kind of goes, I, I'm not sure this is a good market strategy, but if you want me to. And he goes and he buys the field. Pays full value for it. Why would you do that? Like, why on earth would you do that? It's crazy. Except for this. Verse uh, 42 of the chapter says, This is what the Lord says, As I have brought all this great calamity on this people, so I will give them all the prosperity I have promised them. Once more fields will be bought in this land of which you say it is a desolate waste so that people or animals for it has been given into the hands of the Babylonians. Fields will be bought for silver, and deeds will be signed and sealed and witnessed in the territory of Benjamin, etc., etc. What God is saying is, Jeremiah... Put your money where your mouth is. You're the prophet. I'm telling you. I'm telling you the people are coming back. So buy the field. Put that field in your will. Pass it on. Pass it on. Because one day, the market here is going to be good again. Invest now. Show that you trust. So it was the most foolish thing you could possibly do from every metric, from every lane of analysis except the analysis of faith. And so he buys the field. Chapter 33, while Jeremiah was still confined in the courtyard of the guard. Do you hear that? Oh, it's a, a great, great to have the consolation when you're in jail. Jeremiah was still confined in the courtyard of the guard. The word of the Lord came the second time. This is what the Lord says. Well, who's the Lord after all? Who's the Lord, after all, that when I'm in jail and my city is about to be destroyed, who's the Lord that I should listen to him? The word of the Lord came to him a second time. This is what the Lord says. Reminder. He who made the earth, the Lord who formed it and established it, the Lord is his name. Jeremiah, there's these, there's these Babylonians, there's, there's these pesky Babylonians running around. There's corruption in the court system. There's corruption in the religious establishment. There's corruption corruption in, with the king. But Jeremiah, I need the earth. The reason, the reason the whole world exists right now is because I've established it. Jeremiah, that's, that's who I am. Call to me. And I will answer you. And tell you great and unsearchable things that you do not know. Who's the one that we call on? We call on no one less than the covenant God of Israel, Yahweh, who makes, who, who makes a bush burn but not be consumed and makes the ground around it holy. And, and, and to the point where it's so holy, you have, to, you have to go barefoot. It's a sacred space. It's a beautiful, sacred space in the presence of God. The covenant God who made that space. The reason 
the reason there's ground and, and woods and streams, the reason there's oceans and mountains, the reason there's, there's groves that you can go barefoot in is because God is the one who made it and sustains it and made it sustains you. Call on, call on him. Call on me. I will, I will tell you things that you can't imagine. You, 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 might, you might have a, a wonderful scope for the imagination like Anne of Green Gables. And, and yet you can't imagine what God knows. You can't imagine what God has in store. You, you can't imagine that you know, there's some of those if you ever had this experience. Maybe you never have. If you haven't, I, I, I hope that, that you can experience it. Just even just once in your life, multiple times is better, but, but once in your life. Oh, isn't it just wonderful sometimes? To, to have something happen or, or to, to have a conversation or an engagement uh, or, or to meet someone or just have something that exceeds your expectations. Where things go better than you could have thought. And you thought they were going to go pretty well. You, know, you, you, had, you had big dreams. You had, you had a big vision of what it was going to be and it was better. God says, oh, your vision, your imagination, don't count on that. I've got something bigger. So much bigger. I made an earth. I sustained the earth. Think about the imagination. Think about my creative imagination. God's spirit, there's no physicality in God. He's not corporeal. He doesn't have a body. One of the most incredible things about God is he, makes up, he categorically makes up brand new stuff. We can't do that. We can recombine from the medium that he's given us. Like, like, like go right now. I'll even give you, I'll give you 10 seconds. Envision a new primary color. Just see that new primary color. God's invisible. There's, there's no pigmentation in God. God thought up color literally out of nothing. He thought up quarks and molecules out of nothing. He says, okay, here's what you do. Use your imagination. Go. Think of blessings that are greater than the ones I can think of for you. And then you tell me, what do you want? Do you want your vision or mine? Do you want the future I can see? Or do you want the future that you think you can see? Which one's going to be better? Call on me. I'm going to tell you great and unsearchable things. I'm going to tell you wonderful things that will... This is colloquial. It's not quite what God says. He basically says, look, I'm going to tell you things that are going to blow your mind. I'm going to tell you things that you can't possibly imagine on your best day of imagination. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says about the houses in the city and the royal palaces of Judah that have been torn down to be used as the siege ramps and the sword in the fight of the Babylonians. They will be filled with the dead bodies of the people I will slay in my anger and wrath. I will hide my face from the city because of all of its wickedness. Oh, wait a minute. Here, Jeremiah, you're, you're in jail. How about, here's some, comp, here's some more consolation for you. All the people are going to die. I'm going to hide my face from the city. And no one can stop me because I am the Lord, of the maker of heaven and earth. I will tell you great and unsearchable things you do not know. What you don't know is everyone's destined for the sword. What's so great about that? What's so wonderful about that news? What's so wonderful about that news is that what would be a full stop for us is not a full stop for God. Because for God, verse 6, nevertheless. Nevertheless, I will bring health and healing to it. That's what you could not possibly imagine. In the context of death, there is healing. In the context of darkness, there is light. In in, in despair, there actually can be hope. Carefully 
and, and sensitively held on to, maybe tenuously held on to, maybe sometimes just slipping out of your fingers, but still it's there. In the midst of death and chaos and ruin, I will bring health, I will heal my people, and will let them enjoy abundant peace and security. He just said they're going to fall by the sword, and yet still somehow there's peace and security for the people. That is a great thing. That is an unsearchable thing that you cannot know. You can never see. I will cleanse them from all the sin they have committed against me and will forgive all their sins of rebellion against me. Then, at that time, this city, this city that's destroyed, this city that's being torn down, this temple that's going to be set on fire, literally, and stones are going to be broken down from it, this city will bring me renown, joy, praise, and honor before all nations on earth that hear of all the good things I do for it. And they will be in awe and will tremble at the abundant prosperity and peace I provide for it. So in verse 11, they end up giving thanks to the Lord Almighty for the Lord is good. His love endures forever. Surrounded by death every day. Darkness and internal die, metaphorically dying every day, and literal death around them, and yet it's not the last word. That's the scope of God's imagination. Healing, prosperity, joy, gladness. The Lord is good. His love endures forever. How is this possible? Verse 14. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah. In those days, and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved. Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called the Lord, our righteous Savior. The city that's destroyed is going to be rebuilt better than you could ever possibly imagine. Because the Lord is good. His covenant love endures forever. The righteous branch is the Davidic king. It's Jesus, the fulfillment of the line. When Christ is born, the king of kings, God's people are going to live in security again. And when the Lord, this is I think even looking a little bit past that, to the great future, when the Lord returns, when Christ Jesus reigns on earth visibly and acknowledged by all, then... The name of the city is the Lord, our Savior. Oh, the Lord is our righteous Savior because of Christ. You see, this, this book of consolation, it's only possible because of Jesus Christ. In the end, there is no comfort apart from him. We can rejoice because of Jesus. Even Jeremiah in this day, the weeping, broken, shattered prophet, was supposed to draw strength on what was coming in the future. On what God could do. Great and unsearchable things you you cannot know. But God does. And also nobody knew that the Messiah was going to come and die. Nobody knew that God had an imagination that could envision redeeming the world through the death of His Son. No one could possibly imagine that, that the cross was going to yield to the resurrection. And the resurrection was going to yield to the ascension. And the ascension eventually will yield to the return. No one could see that. It was a great thing you could not know. But God did it. He's done it. He's doing it. There's future consummation. And so, draw your comfort and consolation from Christ. Draw your comfort and consolation from Him. It's offered to you. But also, just to say one more thing, which is desperately needed. I worry that in our Western society, we define the word need in an entirely wrong way. 
so that what we consider to be our needs are so obviously transparently wants. But there is something that we need today. It may be a want, but it is also a need. Something we desire, but it's needful. Christ has also designed the church and human relationships in such a way that we we are to be agents that bring comfort and consolation to one another. It is Christ's love, but we are mediators of it. We are to comfort those who need comfort. We are to exercise compassion on those who need compassion. We are to do what we can to impart strength to the weak. We are to assist one another. We are to accompany one another. We are to genuinely care for one another. We are to love one another. And we are to look for opportunities to come alongside of people in their sorrow and sadness and to try to do what we can to give them what they need in comfort and love. It comes from God through Christ and sometimes to others through us. Because many of you know, honestly, that some of the most meaningful experiences of your life have precisely been those times when someone else, acting out of the love of God, has come alongside of you when you needed it. And their presence, perhaps their words, perhaps their wordlessness, perhaps gestures, you know what it's like to have the the need of your heart met at that time by the love of someone else who loves you because they have first experienced the love of Christ in their own heart and the love of God. Can we please can we please be a community of people who does that for each other? Can we please not be afraid or sometimes bravery and courage is to do what's right even though you are afraid? Can we please be a people who mediates comfort and love to one another in the way that God calls us to? Jeremiah just needed a friend. There, there was no one for him. Let us, let us not abandon one another. Let us not pull back. Let us go forward. Let us go deeper in love. And see how rich the joy and comfort and bounty of the Lord is in our experience. I'm going to ask our musicians to come and lead us in our closing song.